23 after 11 o'clock, we continue the conversation on the talking point. Let me welcome Professor Keaton Dada, who is the director of the Centre for Lung Infection and Immunity at the University of Cape Town. We're talking about tuberculosis today. Uh, Professor Dada, good morning to you. Thanks for your time today. Good morning and uh, good morning to all the listeners and thanks for having me on your show. When one looks at what has been predominantly out there about uh, TB, particularly in the last year or so, it has been really concerns raised about the ability to reach out to the community and have those that could possibly be living with TB come forward and be diagnosed and receive treatment. What have you found in as far as practicing in this space and the rate of diagnosis and the ability then to to go on and treat people? Yeah, thanks. That's a very good question. I I guess as a brief introduction, uh, you know, it's important to uh, highlight uh, the point that TB is still a massive problem in the world. It's a massive problem in South Africa and in many other countries. And so much so that roughly about 400,000 people become newly ill from tuberculosis in South Africa every year. And for any country with more than 5 million people, we'd be country with the highest incidence of TB throughout the world. So it's a huge problem. And and a startling statistic is of these newly ill people every year, uh, somewhere between 100 and 150,000 newly ill people remain undiagnosed or undetected. And that's quite chilling. So, you know, that really gets to the heart of the issue you talk about is diagnosis and diagnosis in the community. And that raises a major issue of the current public health strategy that we follow, not only in South Africa, but all over the world. And this is of waiting for people who develop symptoms to come to our clinics. And we call that passive case finding. In other words, we wait for patients to self-declare to healthcare facilities. But in fact, what we should be doing is going out into the community to find these cases, and or patients rather, And as I said, many, almost two in five patients with tuberculosis remain undiagnosed or undetected. And um, so we're rethinking this whole problem. And um, it's very important to also remember that uh, many people with tuberculosis may have minimal or no symptoms. So it's all about trying to get diagnostics out of uh, the clinics uh, and in particular hospitals and laboratories and out into the community. And this may mean going either door to door to homes, uh, mobile vans, uh, using screening apps. There is, in fact, a screening app now for TB that's distributed by the Department of Health. And so we've learned so many lessons from COVID about all the things that we could do uh, to widen the net and to um, facilitate either going out into the community to diagnose TB or, uh, you know, getting more people to come into our clinics to be diagnosed, even if they have minimal or no symptoms. Thanks. For the people who have no symptoms, it, of course, uh, makes sense why they would not be seeking medical treatment. But for those who, who do, what have you found to be the factors that contribute to 
the level of apprehension to actually, you know, have whatever symptoms they that they may be experiencing investigated further? Well, I think there's two things there. Um, before I go into answering the question more comprehensively, I think it's worth sharing the results of uh, a national survey that was done in 2018 in South Africa. And what they did in the survey is they went door to door in many households in various districts, uh, giving uh, a good representation of what's actually happening in the whole country. And this survey was conducted uh, by the Department of Health uh, and the South African MRC. And interestingly, what they found in that survey is of all the people who had proven tuberculosis, uh, about almost 60% of those people actually had either no symptoms or symptoms they did not consider was impo- was were important. So, you know, whilst we traditionally say uh, if you're having persistent cough of more than two weeks or you're having fevers or you night sweats or you're losing weight and you have blood in your spit and so forth, you know, please come forward for testing. But in fact, we've now realized that, um, you know, one may have minimal symptoms or no symptoms or symptoms that people may not regard as important. You know, some people may be having a bit of a cough uh, more long-term and may sort of pop it off as a smoker's cough or, you know, chronic hay fever or something like that. Uh, The basic message is that the, you know, coming forward for testing uh, uh, for TB, that's the, the index of suspicion and the threshold for testing should be very, very low. And not traditionally as we thought, you know, to wait for these symptoms. By the time you get these symptoms, you know, when people are losing weight and having um, quite substantial uh, symptoms of TB with blood in the spit and so forth, you know, the TB is quite advanced and then transmission would have occurred uh, to so many more people in the interim. So the message is lower the threshold for testing, come forward for testing, even if you have minimal symptoms or if you're not sure, particularly if you're at risk, for example, you're HIV infected or you may be having diabetes uh, or something like that. So I think that is the you know change in public health messaging that is important now. We're in conversation with Professor Keaton Deda. He is uh, the director of the Center for Lung Infection and Immunity at the University of Cape Town. We'll continue with him for our health feature today. We're talking tuberculosis. It's 11.30 now. Mpositole is standing by with your headlines. Mpo, good morning. SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. Leading the conversation. Of course, Professor Dada is our guest for this uh, half hour of the conversation. Professor Dada, what then should people do? Because I think that that survey uh, and it's re- the results you just read to us are important. If 60% of people have no symptoms or show minimal symptoms, what then should they be doing? Yeah, so that's, a, that's an excellent question. And I think... Um, as I said earlier on, there should be very a very low uh, threshold for getting oneself oneself tested for TB. Now, this also speaks to uh, you know the public health services and the Department of Health actually going out into the, to the communities to find individuals with TB. And some of the suggestions that are being considered quite seriously now 
uh, are the old, um, some of your listeners may re- remember the old X-ray vans in the 60s and the 70s. So now we're talking about mass screening of individuals. There are also um, artificial intelligence-assisted programs uh, that can scan these digital X-rays and um, um, uh, uh, highlight individuals that uh, are at high risk for TB so that they may be tested. And what this really speaks to is lack of a low-cost, effective screening test. Now, when I talk of a screening test, I'm talking about a test that's easy to administer in the community, low-cost, and that can um, raise suspicion that somebody might have TB and target them for more specific testing at the clinic. And unfortunately... It's one of the biggest challenges facing TB diagnosis. So we don't have a good test like that. And we call that a screening test. At the University of Cape Town, uh, my laboratory and um, uh, in collaboration with others here uh, have found uh, some unique biomarkers in urine. And that's now being developed by one of the UCT startup companies called Antrim Biotech into a screening test for TB that's not yet available. Uh, but these are just giving you uh, some of the sort of unmet needs and ideas uh, that, uh, you know, uh, are being developed. Uh, in another uh, large uh, study and an implementation study and also a research study, for example, we have uh, put the portable DNA-based diagnostics that are normally situated in our centralized laboratories, and we've got small battery-operated versions on these in, in, in mobile, uh, low-cost mobile uh, uh, um, uh, cars that we take out into the community, and uh, people come to these uh, mobile, mini-mobile clinics to be tested on site. Uh, there are also other initiatives where Healthcare workers, for example, in certain districts in the Western Cape are going out door to door asking people about TB, educating them, and taking samples for testing. So these are some of the things uh, that are actively being done uh, and should be uh, expanded in terms of uh, finding people with TB. And I also mentioned the TB app. It is active. Uh, it's available through the Department of Health. It's a WhatsApp-based uh, or SMS-based system. And it basically asks five simple questions. And if you answer yes to any of them, then it directs you and links you up with testing at your local clinic. So these are some of the things um, that are happening and some of the ideas. But it does expose the major unmet need of lack of a good screening test, because as you pointed out now, there's, uh, you know, half the people with TB actually have minimal or no symptoms. So, you know, how do we find these individuals? Do you find then that, you know, that the link that had traditionally been made between HIV and and TB um, that that link still exists because we know that there was also just a lot of stigma around uh, attached to tuberculosis because uh, very often one would find this uh, co-infection that, that existed in patients. Yes, absolutely uh, correct. 
uh, one of the reasons why we have so much of TB in this country, you know, people always ask, well, why do we have so much of TB? And the number one driver of TB in our country is poverty and overcrowding. And surrogates, uh, you know, of that or associates of that are obviously poor nutrition and, you know, abuse of alcohol and other forms of substance abuse. But probably the second most important is HIV. And HIV knocks out a special type of white blood cell called the CD4 T cell. And this CD4 T cell or the specialized type of white cell is particularly important in protecting people against getting TB. So people who are HIV infected are exquisitely sensitive to getting tuberculosis. And the implications of this is that firstly, uh, get yourself tested for HIV. And um, talking of TB, the other sort of uh, huge problem we have is undiagnosed HIV. And about 10 to 15% of HIV remains undiagnosed in the community. We pick up a lot of new HIV when we screen for TB in the community. So get yourself tested. If you're HIV infected, make sure you take your HIV antibiotics or antiretrovirals because this will substantially reduce your chances of getting TB. And particularly if you're HIV infected, uh, one should have a very low index for checking oneself out for TB. So these are, would be the sort of implications uh, if you're HIV infected. And obviously take all the precautions to avoid uh, becoming HIV infected. Uh, another thing that we don't talk about a lot is indoor and outdoor air pollution. And for example, uh, you know, um, many of people in our country, unfortunately, uh, especially uh, with the uh, deteriorating economic situation, we just heard about those CPI figures now and increasing interest rates and so forth. You know, so this this increasing poverty means that people are burning more uh, uh, wood and biomass fuels uh, in order to keep themselves warm or for cooking. Uh, particularly in the peri-urban informal settlements. And so there's a lot of uh, additional indoor air pollution. And when you breathe in smoke from either indoor or outdoor air pollution, you actually uh, disable uh, the key cells in the air sacs and the airways, the air sacs of the lung that actually protect one against tuberculosis. So it makes one a lot more susceptible. Uh, so here's you know, a connection between power outages, for example, and how um, that really drives tuberculosis. Smoking is another one, cigarette mm. smoking, which disables one's defenses against TB. So it's not really only about HIV. It's about, you know, the interaction of all these major drivers of TB and um, that we need to think about the whole package uh, when we think about, uh, you know, TB and preventing TB. Given just the scale of of infections that we have in the country, um, what do the figures tell us in terms of the prevalence? I mean, do you find that TB is more prevalent in in certain age or race groups rather than others? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is that we have a huge TB problem. Uh, As I mentioned early on, somewhere between 350 and 400,000 people every year become newly ill from tuberculosis. Um, you know, about 100 to 150,000 of those people are not even diagnosed or detected. And for any country with a population over about four or five million people, we therefore have the highest 
incidence of TB in the world, meaning that if you correct per capita of population, then, you know, we come out as number one in the world. And um, so, you know, the TB problem is everywhere. And um, it's not about a particular race group, uh, you know, or a particular segment of people. But you have, if you have to highlight something, then, as I said, uh, you know, in communities that are most affected by poverty and overcrowding, that's where TB rates are very high. Uh, in individuals who are HIV infected, the TB rates are very high. And that obviously means that TB is very concentrated in our peri-urban communities, especially where there are high concentrations of informal housing. And as I previously mentioned, associated with this poverty is uh, indoor and outdoor air pollution, poor nutrition, uh, alcohol abuse, or high rates of alcohol intake. And so all these work together uh, to drive TB. And so that's where you get particularly high concentrations of TB. And it's a very important point because uh, some researchers and some people refer to these as TB hotspots. And it means that we need to focus our resources on these areas. And if we were to target screening type of interventions, for example, uh, these apps I talked about, or these mobile vans I talked about, or uh, you know, x-ray vans where we can mass x-ray people for uh, tuberculosis using this as a screening test, these are the places we would go to in the first instance if we want to really make a dent on uh, tuberculosis. Thanks. All right. I've got a question here related to multi-drug resistant TB and and it's one of the things that I also wanted to bring up, but I'll allow our listener to do that for us. Hello, Katie. Uh, I'd like to find out from your guest uh, that let's say you have been, you've been sitting with someone next to someone that have TB or in your family, there's someone that have TB and then you go to the hospital after that, finding out that this, this person have TB. You find out that you have MTRTB on hospital. I'd like to find out what's the explanation of the MTRTB. And as a person that was sitting next to the someone that have TB, when will the symptoms of TB show with you and the other family members that are living while that were living with this person? Mm. Prof? Yeah, okay, those are there's, um, about three or four very important questions in there. Uh, the first thing is that, um, you know, there are lots of misconceptions about TB. You cannot simply get TB from shaking someone's hand or sharing food with them. Secondly, it's more difficult to get TB than one thinks. Uh, TB is due to breathing in micro droplets, um, um, uh, micro particles in the air that, harbor these TB bacilli and they breathe deep into the lung. And um, it's not something that one can get particularly easily. For example, uh, only 1% to 2% of people uh, who are heavily exposed uh, to somebody else with TB actually ends up getting active TB in the short term, you know, over the, over the next uh, two to three years. So um, that's the first uh, sort of point to tackle. The second thing is this concept of multi-drug resistant TB or MDR-TB. And just to unpack that, uh, TB uh, is uh, not something that's invariably fatal. Uh, it is uh, very treatable with the course of antibiotics. 
these, this antibiotic course is given for six months, but there's now even a four-month course that is uh, going to be introduced, so the treatment duration is even shorter. But there are some forms of TB that do not respond to the conventional antibiotics we use to treat TB with. And for example, one key antibiotic, the name of that antibiotic is rifampicin, and when the bug becomes resistant to this key frontline antibiotic, uh, and one other key antibiotic we call that MDR-TB. And this form of TB takes, uh, it's a little bit more difficult to treat. The treatment duration is a little bit longer, but the good news is that uh, we now have newer drugs, uh, and these are, South Africa is actually leading the way in this area of implementing these uh, new regimens and drugs such that um, compared to drug-sensitive TB, MDR-TB is now uh, much more easily treatable. It's also a six-month course of antibiotics. There are no more painful injection that, injections that one needs to take. So these are all, this is all really good news. But um, it is more difficult to treat, and um, uh, the, the treatment success rate are lower than drug-sensitive TB. Right. So, um, so this is what we call MDR-TB, and about 5% roughly of the overall TB in the country is MDR-TB. But this is a particularly uh, worrying form of TB uh, because it does uh, consume a lot of resources. The drugs are much more expensive, and already uh, you know, it consumes more than 50% of the total TB drug budget. So... It is uh, something that's worrying, but that's this entity of MDR-TB. But it is very treatable, and um, and and I hope um, you know the family member is currently uh, on treatment. We have excellent facilities to treat MDR-TB in the country. Thanks. Professor Keaton Dada, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Let me thank you so much for coming onto the show. He's uh, with the Center for Lung Infection and Immunity at UCT.